may be seated. Let's join together now as Christians around the world have been doing throughout this day and for the past thousands of years and taking our copy of God's Word and turning together to our passage this morning, which we find back in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. So Revelation 3, 7 through 13. We are nearing the end of our study of the seven churches of Revelation. And Lord willing, the plan is after we end up this study, we will then transition to a study of the book of Acts. And this began back in the fall where we began to ask the question, was the church? And that's a very big question. We really just kind of focused on some parts of it, really majored on the fact that the church is called to be a means of grace church. And then we looked at that in the context of these seven churches in the book of Revelation. What does it look like? These means of grace, what does it look like in church? What does it look like when the church doesn't obey its given commandments from God? What's the church look like when it refuses to be what has been called to be by Jesus Christ? So now we're going to take that question, we're going to expand it a little bit further by looking at it in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts tells us about the birth of the early church. So we're going to continue that theme onward after we finish this series. So I tell you all that so you know where we're going, but also so you can be in prayer for that series. But this morning, we're, we're in Revelation 3 and we're looking together at the six of seven churches. And it's a church that has a name that we are probably already familiar with. So let's pray now together as we come before God's word. Lord, open our hearts and open our minds so that we may both hear and believe, that we may receive and rest upon Christ as he's offered to us here in Revelation 3. We do this in faith, and we ask this in the name of the one who is the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming in the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. So as we come in our study to the six of the seven churches of Revelation, You've been with here with us through any any part of this, any duration of it. Wouldn't blame you 
for feeling somewhat discouraged at this point. To be discouraged about the potential of being a good, faithful church. Because out of the five churches we've already discussed, there's only been one that was doing well, and that's doing well spiritually speaking. And we're, we're talking about churches that weren't that far away uh, from the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. Maybe just some 50, 60 years at most away from, from the, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. They were still within those generations of the apostles and those who learned under the apostles. And we see that so far out of these five churches... Only one was doing well, spiritually speaking, and that's the Smyrna church. Yet they are suffering trials and tribulations, but, but Jesus says in spite of that, he commends them for, for, for them holding on to him as they realize how much more tightly he has been holding on to them. So this little kind of no-name Smyrna church is the only one that's doing well. The rest of these churches have problems. And some of them have rather significant problems. Problems that... We may look around and see in other churches problems that we may identify here at Bethel, in our own church. Maybe, maybe problems that are, are, are in seed form here. So it can be easy for us to be discouraged by these examples of unfaithfulness. If they were that close to Jesus, if they were that close to the, to the ministry of the apostles, then, then how can we be encouraged by that how can we be encouraged by these examples of unfaithfulness because it just seems to be the norm? So why even try? Why not just, why not just give up? If, if the odds are so stacked against us, especially in our day and age of not only rising secularism, but hostility against the Christian faith and church, why even try? If, if they couldn't do it, then, then why should we even try? Let's just, break, let's just embrace the inevitable, the inevitable being mediocre. Maybe that should just be our, our, our standard, our barometer. Let's just, let's just try to be mediocre. Let's just, we, we can embrace being nominal. As long as we're, you know, doing pretty good about Jesus. Let's just, let's just be nominal. Let's embrace being mediocre. And we'll cross our fingers and hope, that our, and hope that our church makes it another 200 years before it goes the way of Ephesus, the way of Pergamum, the way of Thyatira, Sardis. If we're bound to fail, let's just embrace the inevitable and let's have a good time as we go down in flames. It can be easy to be discouraged. But before we fully jump on that train, Let's take some time to consider this church in, in Philadelphia. Because now out of six churches, we find another one that's doing well, spiritually speaking. They too were surrounded by trials and tribulations. But instead of choosing to succumb to them and succumbing to the world of Satan, the people in Philadelphia chose Jesus. And, and, and as simple as that may sound, as almost cliche as that may sound, it really is as simple as that. Because that's what, it, that's what Jesus is commending them for. And just as he did the church in, in Smyrna, he's commending them for choosing him. This church in Philadelphia, these Christians in Philadelphia, made a conscious choice every day to choose Jesus. They could have made other choices. They could have followed the world. 
They could have tried to put Jesus in a box in a corner and just have him apart just these parts of his life of their lives. They, they could have followed the, the, the cry to just follow your heart. Listen to your heart, and your heart will take you to fields full of wonderful happiness and goodness. But they didn't. They chose Jesus because he first chose them. And so that's what Jesus is commending them for. They're not perfect. They're, 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 not, they're not holier than others. They're just faithful. As a church, as a people, they always chose Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I can say this for myself. I need that encouragement. I, I, I need that encouragement that it's not a call to perfection because goodness knows I know we're close to perfection. It's a call to be faithful. It's a call to choose Jesus, to always choose Jesus. Every situation, no matter the temptation, we're called to always choose Jesus. And part of the encouragement we see here is that God always sees, He always appreciates he always applauds. He always loves the faithfulness of his people. It never escapes his attention. The, the sovereign God sees his people's faithfulness. And he always loves it. He never grows tired of it. So even when times are hard. Even when it seems so easy to just throw in the towel. And let's just go the way of the world. Wouldn't we love to have more people here on a rainy Sunday morning? Then maybe we should start embracing some norms of the world to, to bring them in. Maybe we should start sacrificing some of our, our doctrines, our theology and our belief to, to bring them in, right? As easy as it seems to, to throw in the towel to do that, we find it's always worth it to be faithful. So let's look some more at this faithful little church. The name of it is probably familiar to us, Philadelphia. And that's a combination of two Greek words, words for love and brother. And that's why the city of Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. As I understand, I don't know how much it lives up to its reputation, especially with the Philadelphia Eagles and their fans. But that's a whole other story. But this Philadelphia lives or lies or lied near a, a fertile valley, and it was especially suited for growing wine grapes. So this Philadelphia knew good economic times, and they had some good wine to go with those times as well. But it was also in a region that was subject to earthquake to earthquakes that happened so frequently that, according to some source to some sources, new cracks appeared in the city wall daily. So times were good. But there's also the earthquakes to deal with. Inscriptions found from the city mentions worship of Zeus. And another inscription mentions a synagogue in that town as well. So we find like the other churches in Revelation, Philadelphia, the Philadelphia church was in a city that was doing well economically. But culturally, it had some difficulties. There was, there was pagan worship and it was in the majority around them. But not only was there, there, there that Greek pagan worship, they also had to do, deal with Jews who were very much set against them. 
So it wasn't easy ground to harvest. It wasn't an easy, uh, easy place to do ministry. And this is a, a familiar setup as we've seen with the other churches. Now we have very little information on how the church began in the city. We don't know the who or the when. We know it stems back to Acts 2, verses 1 through 11. And that from that point, the gospel got to Philadelphia somehow. And it was prospering to the point that there was a church and a group of Christians there, and they were suffering persecution for their faith. And just like the other churches, Jesus begins his letter with a description of himself. Look again at verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So we may read that and go, oh, that's kind of peculiar language. But it's very Old Testament language, very much Old Testament descriptives that come from a story in Isaiah 22. A story about a man named Eliakim, who was one of the three men chosen to negotiate with the Assyrians. And Eliakim was given the key of David, which meant he had the authority to speak and negotiate on behalf of David. So Jesus is taking this Old Testament language and he's applying it to himself to help us understand that he is the Son of God who has the authority to speak on behalf of the Father in heaven. Therefore, his word is as good as the Father's because he is the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity. Now, we need to pause here for a moment and we need to make sure we understand a difference here. And the difference is that Jesus wasn't given authority because he lacks it. That Jesus, the Son, was somehow lesser than God the Father. And because he was lesser that the Father had to give him the authority. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, he's saying he has the authority to speak on behalf of God because he is God. Now that might sound like we're trying to, to, to nuance this too much, but really that, that difference there will either make or break your view of Jesus. Because if Jesus doesn't have the influence of the Father, the authority of the Father, he is lesser than the Father, which means he is not God, and therein blows out our whole Christology and blows out all the Trinity. That there is something insufficient to Jesus. He's no longer God. So either Jesus is God or he isn't. And what Jesus is saying here to, to, to pull from the Old Testament language is to say he is indeed God. He's the second person of the triumph Godhead. He is the same as substance and equal in power and glory. So therefore, what he's getting ready to say to church in Philadelphia is supreme and powerful because he is speaking as God, because he is God. He's not just an ambassador who's been given authority. He comes in the authority of God because he is God. So he goes on to say he is the, the Holy One, the True One. Another way of saying he's divine. He's the one who, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and, and no one opens. Which means he has the authority to admit or to exclude from God's kingdom and it cannot be reversed because he is God. So what John is doing here uh, through, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he's giving us a very high Christology and that's a very John-esque thing to do. When you go through the Gospel of John, you go through his three letters, you go through the book of Revelation, it's a very high view of Jesus. A very high Christology. Making sure we understand this isn't just a prophet, this isn't a good man. It says the Nicene Creed said he is very God of very God. And so the church in Philadelphia are to hear his words as such. 
and we are to hear them as such as well. And so the first thing Jesus says to the church is the first thing he said to the church in Sardis as well. I know your works. But as we said with the church in Sardis, that was meant to bring them pause because their works were not good. They did some things for Jesus, but they loved mostly the world. They, 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 they loved holding hands with the devil more than they loved following Jesus. So their works ultimately weren't good because they didn't come from a love and faith of Jesus. But for the church here in Philadelphia, this, this, this saying, I know your works, is meant to bring them encouragement because their works were faithful. Like Sardis, Jesus intimately knew their works. Unlike Sardis, Jesus knew that their works, imperfect as they may be at times, comes from faithfulness, not a desire to be loved by the world. So Jesus is commending them. He's he's saying to them, I I know your works. Look what he says in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This open door he's talking about here correlates to opportunities for ministry. Same language Paul uses in 1 and 2 Corinthians and Colossians. And and so what, what Jesus is saying to his church here in Philadelphia all right, so when, when he sees, let me put this, when, when he looks at this church in Philadelphia, he sees a church that's willing to pursue the ministry that Jesus has given them. He has made known to them the ministry they need to pursue, and they go off in that ministry to pursue it. They're not a church that's trying to, to forge their own path. They're not trying to go their own way. They're not trying to do their own thing. They're not looking at what Jesus has given to them and go, mm, I think we do better over here. No, what they know Jesus has given them, they then pursue. And in that, I believe we can, we can assume this includes the means of grace that we've talked about. That the church in Philadelphia was faithful in the reading and preaching and teaching of God's word. They were, pray, they were faithful in praying with and for each other. They were, they were faithfully taking the sacraments. They would faithfully have fellowship with one another. So they were faithfully being the church. But there's also local local components. Jesus is speaking to the local church in Philadelphia. And they were a church in a a very non-Christian city. They were surrounded by all sorts of opportunities to share the gospel and to share the love of God. Opportunities that God has sovereignly provided for them. And they faithfully pursued. They weren't just just good at, at, at being the church. They were good at doing the church, if that makes sense. They would do this every Sunday. They were good about the means of grace. But as they prayed about it and God made known to them the the ministry opportunities for them to pursue, they went out and they pursued them. And I think this would be a good time for us to stop and think about ourselves. And the opportunities for ministry that God has provided to us as a church here at Bethel and as a people. And for us to ask, are we faithfully pursuing them? Are we seeing them as God-given chances to share the gospel and the love of God? Are are we as a church, as a people, are we being faithful to the open doors that Jesus has given to us? That we're not making excuses. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't think that's the direction we should go or I should go. But but if if we're looking at it and we're prayerful about it, are, are are we being faithful 
as, as individuals, as a church, are we being faithful to the open doors that Jesus has given to us? And Jesus says here, no one can shut those doors. So if he's called us, as a church, as a people, to do something, then as long as we faithfully pursue it, then not even Satan himself can shut the door on us. Now, will he try to shut the door? Absolutely. But can he shut the door on us? No way. If God has given us a ministry to pursue, as long as we faithfully pursue it, even Satan himself cannot stop it. And that is the faithfulness of Philadelphia. But Jesus says that that there is an issue to this. He says, I know that you have but little power. Now, this may mean that they were few in number. They may have been a smaller church. Or it may mean that they weren't very gifted in proclaiming the gospel of power. That they meant well, they just weren't very good at it. Or maybe it goes together. Maybe what Jesus is saying is, you, the church in Philadelphia, you are small in numbers. You are small in talent. Maybe you're not making as big of a splash as you would like. You're trying, but you're lacking. But what does Jesus do? He commends them for doing the work. He commends them for being faithful. Yes, they may be small. Yes, they may be lacking. But they are still going to go out and not only be the church, but do the church as well. For those of you who were here for our Bible study Wednesday night, you've already heard my, my diatribe uh, my soapbox I'm getting ready to go up on for a minute, uh, but I'll do my best to keep it shorter for us this morning. But this is, this is my soapbox for this morning. We live in such a celebrity-obsessed culture where, they, where they, celebrities are meant to dictate our, our, our morality, uh, our political views. They're, they're meant to dictate so much of our life. We live in such a celebrity-obsessed culture that the notion of being normal is almost evil to us. Why would we want to be normal if we could be a celebrity? Why would we want to be normal if, if we can be an influencer on Instagram? Or if we can get yay so many views on, on, on TikTok or YouTube? Or, or, or whatever, wherever we want to be a celebrity in. We, we live in such an obsessed culture with this that the idea of being normal is almost evil to us. But this runs counter to God's word, doesn't it? Remember, he tells Israel he didn't choose them because they were the biggest or the best. They were the opposite. And we find over and over again in the Bible that God uses ordinary Christians to do extraordinary things. I'll say it this way. We are coming up on 200 years of being a church here. Why? Because God... The son calls some fishermen, some taxmen, and some zealots to go out and plant his churches. Not the PhDs, not the highly esteemed, the lowliest, the normal. We find over and over again in the Bible that God uses ordinary Christians 
to do extraordinary things. Ordinary Christians like you and me. Yet when ordinary Christians are faithful to God, He can and He does do wonderful things through them. Just like He does with the church here in Philadelphia. We're reading about a church that existed 2,000 years ago. Tell me that their normal faithful Christianity didn't matter. Because Jesus wrote them a letter and said, you do matter. And I'm going to put you in my word so other people can learn from you. A smaller group of faithful Christians who loved and followed Jesus. And he commends them for this. But it wasn't just their faithfulness in ministry that Jesus commends them for. He says, I know you have but little power, but you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. So Jesus looks at this little church, little faithful church, and the best he can say about them is, you loved me and you loved my word. And Jesus says, I love you for that. Think about that. Jesus from heaven looks down to him and says, here's why I love you. Because you love me and you love my word. And I want generations of Christians to know about you. I want generations of churches to know you. I want churches to be built upon your truth. I want churches to know the truth about you. I heard a pastor once say that one of the highest compliments you can pay a church is to say to them that you are a simple people and you are a simple church. Simple in that they love Jesus and his word and all they want is a pastor who will love them like Jesus and always take them to his word. That's the church we find in Philadelphia. It's a simple people. It's a simple church. They weren't the biggest. They weren't the best. They weren't the most talented. They just loved Jesus. They loved his word. And they were faithful to him and to his word. They wanted to hear his word faithfully preached. They wanted to read his word faithfully during the week. They wanted to obey his word as best they could. And when they disobeyed it, they wanted to repent of it. They were a simple church. They were simple people who loved Jesus and his word. And they were faithful to him and to his word. And that's a wonderful example for us, isn't it? Don't we want to be a simple people? Don't we want to be a simple church? Don't we, want, don't we want people to say, I want to come to Bethel because y'all love Jesus and his word. I, I want to come to Bethel because I see how you love Jesus and his word. And it's because of that faithfulness and ministry and word and faith that Jesus says he would shame their enemies as we see in, in verse 9. To those who have kept his word, Jesus promises, I will keep you. What the whole world will have to endure, Jesus will be with his people. The world won't have Jesus during those times. He'll be with his people. Even with these Jews who have, who have persecuted the Christians, who have, who have gone against them, Jesus says, I will be with you. And that's the encouragement here to be faithful. So I want us to close this morning with this one last word of encouragement to be faithful. If we find in verse 12. The one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now there's a lot here, so let me me summarize it as quickly as I can. Jesus is saying there's always blessings for obedience and persevering. 
And one of the biggest and best blessings is eternal life with their Father in heaven. As a pillar in God's temple, inscribed with the name of God, the one who conquers will never be excluded from God's presence. For he will dwell in God's new Jerusalem as, God, as David's royal heir. So Jesus wants us to think of that. By living faithfully for God now, will guarantee, we'll guarantee heaven with him. Living faithfully for him now, will guarantee that we will experience all the wonders of heaven with God as our Father, Jesus as our Lord, Savior and Elder Brother, and the Holy Spirit as our Comforter and God. And Jesus said, it doesn't get any better than that. And that is what awaits faithful Christians. Faithfulness leads to God's name being written on you and the promise of all the glories of heaven. So let's go back to what we started with. Is faithfulness worth it? When we see these other churches failing, is faithfulness worth it? In a secular world that's set against us, is faithfulness worth it? In a world that provides more and more temptations and reasons to not be faithful in going to church, to not go to prayer meetings, to not be involved in youth group, to be set apart from fellowship, is faithfulness worth it? Well, I can't answer that for you. Only you can answer that. And I pray the Spirit has given each of us ears to hear His Word so we may know the eternal, the eternal worth of being faithful to Jesus and to His Word. Let's pray together.